Welcome to the Why It Works podcast. I'm Joe Kwan, your host. Together, we'll pull back the curtain to reveal the hidden principles behind why things work. Things work for a reason. Let's find out why. Audiobooks are my kryptonite, and today's podcast is brought to you by Audible, the Rolls Royce of audiobooks. Get a free audiobook and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash why it works. Here with us today is Michael Orth. He calls himself a professional imposter. He started his career as an actor and improviser. Then, after spending many years playing the role of a business professional in corporate presentations and events, he actually became one. Michael works with businesses to help create and promote engaging and impactful learning experiences. We speak to Michael from his home in the New York metro area on a cool spring evening. Welcome, Michael, to the Why It Works podcast, and thank you for being here. Well, it's great to be here, Joe. It's always great to talk to you, and uh, I've been following your work, really enjoying what you do, and really eager to get into it with you. Well, thank you, Michael. That really means a lot to me. Uh, so in earlier conversations, uh, I learned, I was a little bit surprised that you were in the theatrical world uh, before working into business. So tell me a little bit about some perhaps uh, common misunderstandings that you may have come across as you made the transition into the business world. Yeah, I did start doing theater and particularly theater in education. Did a lot of performing for, for kindergartners and high schoolers and people in college and and then somewhere along the way, I started to play the role of a business person in training mm-hmm. events. And then eventually that turned into actually being a business person, actually stepping in and becoming a consultant for the same kinds of events that I used to present at and to think about it from that end. And your question was, what do, peop- what do business and people maybe not understand about, about actors um, or about theater? Mm-hmm. And I guess I would say it's that what the actors are doing has more relevance to them than they might think. You know, there, oh. there, there are certainly things that, that aren't so relevant. You know, you're, you're mm-hmm. acting is a lot about artifice. It's about being somebody you're not. And mm-hmm. that to some degree is not what a business person does. But I've been reflecting a lot lately. Mm. about how my early training in theater and improvisation prepared me for what I do now. In fact, sometimes I call myself a professional imposter. That When I was first working in the business world, I felt like I was in the wrong place, that hmm. somehow I didn't belong. But now, years and years in, now that I do definitely belong, now that I have had a track record of success here, I look back and I go, you know, I wasn't the only person along the way who felt like I didn't belong in the business world. Oh, I wasn't, yeah. You know, that, that, in fact, the kinds of things that you get trained to do when you're trying to comically improvise or to act in a piece of theater, uh-huh. uh, you're basically, you're working with people that you may not know. You're handed a reality that you may not be familiar with, and you're asked to create something new. And that basically describes almost every meeting on my calendar this week. <laughs> More than uh, you, right? Lots of people's calendars, right? <laughs> oh, wow. That's really great. So uh, let's get to know you a little bit better. Uh, tell us what you do, but break it down as if you were speaking to a five-year-old. Okay. I work these days in learning and development. And my job basically is to work to make learning more fun and to make learning count. Mm-hmm. So I'll be working on training programs and I'll try to make them more engaging by making a video or by coming up with an exercise or just by promoting why somebody should be engaged in that. And then to try to find ways to bring home the key messages of those learning programs. But as I say along the way, I've also kind of been thinking about, uh, well, in the words of your podcast, why it works, how, yeah. how, how we make these collaborations happen and what in my theater background really uh, speaks to the dynamics that are going on in an everyday meeting in the office. Great, great. Well, 
I am so excited to have you here and let me explain to you why. Um, I've been reflecting a lot as well, uh, particularly on being heard and mm. why in some situations you're heard and some situations you're not, or why in a group setting some people are heard more and other people's are heard less. And I don't mean to embarrass you, but you know, I kind of think of you as the unofficial MC of KPMG Montvale. So you are someone who has mastered the art of being heard. And I'm just so excited to discuss some of these sort of group dynamics and how you know, uh, theater and improvisation can inform kind of effectiveness uh, in, in, in being heard in corporate America. Well, thank you for your kind words. I would say, Let's, let's dig into one particular aspect of that. And it's a concept that maybe wouldn't be happening in your first improv class, but it would be happening in your third. Okay. Where you would start to talk about the concept of status. How you are perceived relative to the other characters in a scene, the other people in the room, the other people in the world. Right. Are you better than them? Are you worse than them? And in the world of improv, there's a lot of... Uh, food for humor, for comedy, for dramatic scenes in the idea of status. Somebody who comes in very high status and somebody who's trying to be low status right along the way. But in real life, there are a lot of things to be aware of as well. When do you want to walk into the room and feel like you own it? When do you want to walk into the room and feel like you are, you know, you're relying on everybody else? And I would say, in my observation, that in a given day, you might play the full range of status or nearly the full range of status, and that what you do in a given situation might be different than what you do in another situation. I remember that uh, when, I, when I was teaching, I, mm -hmm. I would do this exercise. Um, it was actually, I've, I've watched another episode of your, your podcast or listened to another episode of your podcast where you had a clip from The Office where mm -hmm. Michael Scott does a really terrible exercise where people put uh, a card on their heads with, you know, a, a, a race on right, it. Right, right, right. Treat each other appropriately. And it's a horrible exercise. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to run a, a version of the exercise that was much better, where people would put playing cards on the top of their head. And the, okay. the, the card would suggest what status they were. Right? Okay. If you had an ace on top of your head, you owned the world. If you had a two, you were the worst person on the planet. And okay. then everywhere in between. People couldn't talk to each other. They would move around the room. They wouldn't know what the card was on their head, but they would see the card on everybody else's head. And mm -hmm. as they would work back and forth, they would make eye contact or lack of eye contact. And by the way they treated other people, people figured out what was the number on their head. And I would ask them at the end, line up. Wow, without, without any talking, just non-verbals, they could figure it out. That's incredible. They would be able, with one small exception that I might talk about a little bit later, uh, okay. they would be able to figure out where they sat. That's the concept of status. The way we treat each other mm -hmm. tells you where you sort of fall in the pecking order. And every exchange has the potential to lower somebody else's status or to raise it, to lower your own status or to raise it. And uh, I think the... The thing that's interesting to me is that it doesn't necessarily correlate to who, how valuable you are as a person. No. You might be a really valuable human being and choose in a particular situation to play low status. Right. Because that might be the right thing for that moment, right? Right, right, right. About confidence. You might be an incredibly confident person, but choose in a particular situation to play low status. And it's not really even about you. You know, it's not playing high status is not something you necessarily do because you want everybody to, you know, value you more. Maybe, it, okay. maybe it's not, but it's because that's what the situation requires. And if you're aware enough of your status that you can shift it up and down as the situation requires, then you've made yourself so much more facile and so much more able to navigate. You know, you asked, what does it take to be heard? And I would say even playing low status can make you heard in the right situation. Oh, I love that. I love that. Even playing low status can make you heard in the right situation. All right. So let's explore this a little bit more. Let's start with a video of someone, love him or hate him, who certainly projects a certain type of status. 
Nobody knows the system better than me. Which is why I alone can fix it. <laughs> I see you giggling in the background. So what do you see here? <laughs> that kind of says it all, doesn't it? That is <laughs> Donald Trump, as you say, love him or hate him, love his policies or hate his policies. This guy is a high status player, right? You see this rap artists sometimes mm -hmm. do it. Sports figures sometimes do it. Other celebrities do it. But you almost never see this in American politics. A guy hmm. who leads with, I mean, the total top of that card spectrum. He is playing an ace or a king or a queen all the time. Everything is, the thing that I'm doing now is the greatest thing in history. Right. I am the greatest president in history. He hits that harder and harder, right? And he got himself elected president. So I, I, can't, sure. I can't say that it's, it's completely ineffective. You can hear the crowd. They're shocked by it. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, the people in that crowd loved hearing him play high status. Huh. So I will say, though, that, mm -hmm. that that's like so much that he does, it's very polarizing, right? Yeah. If you are somebody who are, you're disposed to like Donald Trump, then his high status plays are going to excite you. You're going to find them funny. And you're going to feel like you're sort of included in that. I support this guy. So his high status means that I'm high status, too. But if you're disposed not to like this guy or not uh -huh. to trust him, then his high status play is actually going to make him, it's going to make it worse for you, right? Right, you're right. Gonna, you're going to find his claims hollow. And the fact that he is continually banging the drum on how great he is, is actually for you going to lower his status, right? You're going to yeah. think less of his value after he makes all those high status plays because he's so insistent. You know, compare him with somebody... Uh, from an earlier day, like Ronald Reagan, who, you know, was, was sort of on the same side of the political spectrum, but approached status in a very different way. Reagan would come up and wouldn't talk about himself, but he'd walk up with this gravitas, humor, sometimes even self-deprecation, sometimes mm -hmm. even a low status play. But in the way that he delivered, in the way that he stood, you knew that this guy was in charge right? Hmm. Completely different approaches to trying to get yourself high status. Trump's is the more divisive and polarizing uh, and the more insistent. What I find interesting about what you're saying is there's definitely an interplay between, you know, what the person is projecting and the recipient, right? So there's, there's a dynamic that's going on there. And depending on who the recipient is or how they feel, th that may be received differently. That, that's an excellent point because it's an exchange. It's a, it's a status is like a conversation, right? Mm. I send a signal to you right. and you receive it. You send a signal to me and I receive it. And that's one of the reasons that how you play a situation, you, you might play a certain situation high status and another has a situation low status because that's the right thing for the person you're with, the people you're with, the situation you're facing. Great. All right, so next, let's take a look at a scene from the movie Coach Carter, where Samuel L. Jackson is having a heart-to-heart -heart with his team in the locker room after they fell just short of a championship. Oh, well, not quite your storybook ending, huh? Not for us, anyway. But you men played like champions. You never gave up. And champions hold their heads high. What you achieve goes way beyond the win-loss column or what's going to be written on the front page of the sports section tomorrow. You've achieved something that some people spend their whole lives trying to find. What you achieved is that ever-elusive victory within. And gentlemen, I am so proud of you. Four months ago, when I took the job at Richmond, I had a plan. That plan failed. I came to coach basketball players, and you became students. I came to teach boys, 
you became men. And for that, I thank you. If someone walked in this door right now and offered me the coaching job at any school in the state of California, you know which team I'd choose? St. Francis. <laughs> Just saying, man. Can you? Richmond? Rich what? Richmond. Rich what? Richmond. Rich what? Richmond. Where are we from? Richmond. What's my hometown? Richmond. So. What's going on here, Michael? Yeah, okay, really interesting. I've never seen this movie all the way through. Um, so I'm guessing that yeah. uh, like most movies uh, about a coach, that he probably comes into this group and he probably comes in really high status. He probably has to break the Colts. He probably has to teach them to surrender their egos and play as a team. Am I right? Yeah. Okay, so that's it. You know, in a certain point of the movie, he probably needed to play them really high status. He probably needed to teach them that if they were going to work well as a team, they needed to give up some of their individual status. But here he changes his tune. And he even changes within that scene, you know? He walks in, he says, you need to hold your head high. He is still playing high status. This scene turns in a moment. Hmm. This it's the moment when he says, I came here and I failed. Oh, yeah. So what he does in that moment is he drops his own status. Not all the way down, because then it wouldn't work. Okay. But he drops it down to maybe just a little bit below where he sees them. And he turns it and he starts saying to them, you taught me a lesson. Thank you. I tried to do one thing. You guys had a better plan. You made my year, right? Wow. And that's why I'm, right? So he, by dropping his own status, you watch them starting to look up, right? He raises theirs. He's daring mm. to let go of, of promoting his own status, you know, drop his own level, and then they can take it over. They're the ones who are chanting Richmond at the end, right? <laughs> their story, right? And I think the same thing is true for us when we're dealing with teams at work, right? There are times yeah. when you need to walk in and they're looking to you to be the high status person. Right. They're looking to you to be the person who's got the plan, who's going to inspire them, who's going who's gonna to lead and they can trust you. You need to walk in playing that 10 Jack Queen, right? There are other moments like this one where mm -hmm. what they need from you is for you to drop your status, mm -hmm. right? For you to spend your energy in giving them the signals that their status is higher. Let, let go, let them take over because that's what that team needs at that time. Yeah. You know, something you said just resonates with me so much in that, you know, sometimes when you put people up on a pedestal, that almost becomes your ceiling right? Mm. You feel like you can't go any higher because this person is always so much smarter, more experienced. But when someone like that, who you really respect and esteem can say, look, I don't have all the answers. You're really good at this. I need, we need you to do this. It is very powerful to like lift you up and motivate you. It's all what the situation requires in that moment. Yeah. Great. So uh, sometimes great ideas can come from unexpected places. So in our next clip, Tom Hanks ah. is a kid who has wished himself into an adult body and <laughs> finds himself in a high-powered meeting. So let's check it out. Transformers pull 37% market share Sorry. and that we are targeting the same area. I think that we should see one quarter of that and that is one-fifth of the total revenue from all of last year. Any questions? No. Not for me. Yes? Yes? I don't get it. <coughs> what exactly don't you get? It, it turns from a building into a robot, right? Precisely. Well, what's fun about that? 
Well, if you had read your industry breakdown, you would see that our success in the action figure area has climbed from 27% to 45% in the last two years. There, that may help. Oh. Yes. I, I still don't get it. What? What don't you get, Judge? Well... There's a million robots that turn into something. And this is a building that turns into a robot. What's fun about playing with a building? That's not any fun. This is a skyscraper. Well, couldn't it be like a, a, a robot that turns into, into something, like a, like a bug or something? A bug? Yeah. Like a big prehistoric insect with maybe like giant claws that could pick up a car and, and crush it like that. <laughs> a prehistoric transformer? Interesting. Gentlemen, it... So the robot turns into a bug. Ah, uh, gentlemen, oh, listen, listen to him. just got a very good idea here. The robot turns into a bug. Uh, this yeah, is yeah, a great yeah. idea. Some water, water bug, maybe? Different sizes and things. Yeah. And, Susan, and we could do ladybugs. You could have them wreck building. Transformers for girls. A building is an earth bug. It's got all kinds of possibilities. This doesn't just happen. This guy just doesn't happen. You just don't... He doesn't just come to a meeting and say bugs. Well done, Josh. Well. What can we learn from what just happened, Michael? All right. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, what we see in that scene is a status flip-flop, right? Okay. At What's the beginning that? of it, we've got uh, the guy who's presenting in front of the room doing all the classic high-status things. He's in his power suit. He's got his power stance. He's speaking confidently. He's bringing his presentation in you know, for a landing. He gets huge applause. He's got all his evidence. He's got it all sewn up. He's doing it all right. You got the other guy there, the Tom Hanks character, who is doing all the classic low status things. He's tentative. Mm. He asks a question. He holds up his hand sort of tentatively. Um, it's, a, it's a very low status approach. Now, in this scene, he, he has the benefit of being right. This is not all about status, right? The okay, other guy is yeah, wrong. Yeah. He's right. So that's yeah, it. Yeah. But what you're watching in this scene is this guy who comes at it high status, this other person who takes a low status approach and plants a seed. Nobody's going to interrupt the high status guy. It's like what you said a second ago about sometimes somebody's uh, so high status that you, you don't want to bring up an, another issue. You, right. you, well, they've got their thing going on. But what he does, he offers a, a great suggestion in a low status way. It's mm -hmm. disarming, right? Yes. It allows everybody else to jump in. And pretty soon, he's got the whole room building on his idea. And, you know, there it is right at the end. of. Uh, I, I, think, I think Robert Lozier is saying something like, good, good job, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sort of buttons it up, right? The, the status, the, the person who was high status has now been lowered. The person who was low status has been raised. Uh, so it's almost counterintuitive. But I, I, think, I think, you know, one of the things I was thinking about when I was watching that scene is yeah. if, that, if that kid had tried to make his challenge in a high status way, it would have fallen flat, right? I believe that. I actually he do. doesn't have the way, he doesn't have the evidence at his fingertips. He doesn't, yeah. He's not able to say, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to challenge that from you. It would have seemed confrontational. Mm -hmm. So what he does is he slips the right idea in in a low status way. Ex excuse me, have you ever thought about it this way? You know, I, I don't get it, right? And it plants a seed and it starts a little revolution in that, in that meeting room. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, I, I've noticed in, in some rooms that it can pay to sort of admit your ignorance mm -hmm. on an issue, to be yeah. the dumbest person in the room. You know, to say, hey, maybe it's just me, but um, does this make complete sense to everybody else, right? And you, you're able to raise an issue without seeming confrontational, you know, without taking somebody's um, thunder away, but you're able to get the idea out there in a way that other people can grab and do something with. Well, what I love about what you said, and I totally agree with, is that if he had gone in challenging with the high status, that wouldn't have worked. And I find it interesting that in, in some situations, like you said, I believe you, were, you used the word disarming. I think it's mm. exactly right. It's, it's non-threatening and it allows people to, like you said, plant the seed 
and create power and status that he otherwise wouldn't have had because he went in kind of disarmingly and, and subtly. And I think there are certain scenarios where we think we have to come in, you know, really tough and, and hard. And, you know, sometimes that's not the right approach. And sometimes even when it works, I feel like there's collateral damage, right? Because, oh. you know, when you come in kind of soft and gentle and, you know, easygoing, you're not ruffling any feathers, it allows people space to accept that or reject that. Whereas if you come in like, you know, I'm the top dog, this is the way we're going to do it. Sure, maybe some people like it, but it also sometimes can have adverse effects. Absolutely. I think you, I think you nailed it. All right. So I feel like you can tell a lot about a person by the way they give wedding toasts and acceptance speeches. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard some really bizarre ones, which I won't go into. Um, let's take a look at two markedly different approaches. Uh, the first one is Lupita Nyong'o. I hope I said that right. Her speech after winning Best Supporting Actress for 12 Years a Slave. Thank you to the Academy for this incredible recognition. It doesn't escape me for one moment that so much joy in my life is thanks to so much pain in someone else's. And so I want to salute the spirit of Patsy for her guidance. And for Solomon, thank you for telling her story and your own. Steve McQueen, you charge everything you fashion with a breath of your own spirit. Thank you so much for putting me in this position. It has been the joy of my life. What's your take, oh, Michael? Yeah, you know, we were talking a second ago about Tom Hanks being disarming. He's got nothing on the <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay, so I think this is, this is a great example of something that we see a lot. Somebody wins an award they typically are gonna to wanna to come up and they play that even though this is a moment where they're actually being seen as high status, their play is gonna be low status. They're gonna come up and they're gonna say, it's not about me, it's about the people who got me here, right? Okay. And that's a, a terrific thing. They use that moment not to sort of reinforce their own status, but to share that high status moment, right? To, uh -huh. with somebody else right and it's um and she does that in a wonderful way you know she she's even speaking in the, in the passive voice thank you thank you to the character thank you to the director for putting me in this place it's uh -huh. been a joy for me she is not saying uh it was hard work for me i worked you know i i i trained for this and i i did it well i mean every once in a while you do see an acceptance speech that is like that but typically here in the moment of highest status for somebody, uh -huh. it's like they have permission to stop trying to push their own status huh. and to just give those status signals out to other people. Yeah, yeah, it's really wonderful to see. So uh, next, let's take a look at Frances McDormand's speech in 2018 for Best Actress in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Okay, <laughs> so I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. <laughs> so I, I think this is what Chloe Kim must have felt like after doing back-to-back -back 1080s in the Olympic halfpipe. Did you see that? Okay, that's what it feels like. I want to thank Martin McDonough. Look what you did. Uh, we are a bunch of hooligans and anarchists, but we do clean up nice. I want to thank every single person in this building and my sister Dorothy. I love you, Dot. And I especially want to thank my clan, Joel and Pedro Mick Cohen. These two stalwart individuals were well raised by their feminist mothers. They, they value themselves, each other, and those around them. I know you are proud of me, and that fills me with everlasting joy. 
So this is a situation where uh, this is the exception to the rule, right? She walked up and from the second she starts to accept that, uh, she's doing it from a more high status place. You could hear it in her voice. You can see it in the way she's standing and you certainly hear it in what she says. I think she literally says, um, you know, sit down. I've got some things to say, right? You've given me this platform. Let's go. Um, and I, I, where, where she goes with it is to, is to make a cry for the Me Too movement for, um, uh, she yells at something right at the end of it, if I remember right, uh, about, um, some uh, inclusion writer or something. She's got an agenda. So what she does is she's going to take her moment of highest status and she's not going to play it at a low status way. She's going to grab it in a high status way and she's going to use that platform to promote something else. Now, I still don't think that she seems self-centered in this, right? But she does seem like we need to stand up and take or sit up and take notice of, of what she's got to say, right? She's using her high status. She's embracing it and she's going to use it for a purpose. Just very different approach. It's interesting how she uses her high status to help people or lift people up in a, in a different way. It's, it's instead of like the uh, Lapido Nyong'o was like low status to, you know, lift people up. She's using her high status also to kind of, help people or lift people up. It's, it's a bit of an interesting, different take on it. Absolutely. And again, it's just, what do you want to do with that moment? She's mm-hmm. served up this moment where mm-hmm. everybody's telling her she's the greatest actress in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Both of them have that situation. How are you going to use it? One of them makes a low status play and is very effective. The other mm-hmm. one makes a high status play, also very effective. They made their choice. So there are no rules. <laughs> it's very situational. I think that's an important thing that we have to figure out in life if we want to get through life, not too damaged, that you can't just stick to one rule and, uh, you know, barge well, ahead. I, I think there, there you go. There's the paradox, Joe. Is that is the rule. Yeah. Is that you've, you've got to be able to be flexible. If you yeah. find yourself getting stuck, uh-huh. then you may be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's an important lesson that we're all... Um, unfortunately retaught at various points in our life. So let's have a little bit of fun. Uh, Let's dissect a few scenes of uh, status play, a new term that I learned from you, status play uh, at work. Now, the first one is one that you picked out as we were going back and forth with videos that we would use. And I got to say, you had me at TPS report. Corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Uh, we have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I, I forgot. Mm, yeah. You see, we're putting the cover sheets on all TPS reports now before they go out. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just, uh, forgot. But, uh, it's not shipping out till tomorrow, so there's no problem. Yeah. If you could just go ahead and make sure you do that from now on, that would be great. And uh, I'll go ahead and make sure you get another copy of that memo. Okay? Yeah, no, I, I, I have the memo. I've got it. It's right. Hello, Phil. What's happening? Um, yeah. Break it down for us, Michael. <laughs> yeah. That Office Space, one of my favorite <laughs> movies of all time. Definitely. And- Absolutely an educational experience. This is your primer on status play in the office. (laughs) And what's really interesting about this world that's so evident in this scene is that everybody is low status. Everybody, this company they work for, Inatech, they're all looking up to it and they're all doing stuff because they have to. They're all low energy about it. Um, and poor, you know, Milton is stuck in the basement and people are taking a stapler. They won't give him a piece <laughs> of cake and all of those wonderful things. But in this particular scene, we've got, we've got the boss, Lumberg, who's coming over and is just depressing, just pushing down on Peter. Everything he says and the way he says it is communicating in no uncertain terms that Peter is lower than dirt, right? He's yeah. using this moment that could be simple. Hey, put the cover on the report. And he's using it as a way to grind him down. And it's down to the way he says. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you, I'll, I'll make sure you have another copy of that memo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the weird thing about him is that it doesn't really raise his status. He doesn't no. give anything about that exchange. Right. He, he's, he's still just as sort of medium to low status as he was when he walked up to Peter's desk, but he's made sure that Peter is just a little bit lower. Ah. So it's just, in, in the movie, you know, Peter finally breaks the cycle, but he does it by just refusing to listen. Yeah. <laughs> he just says, you know, I've had enough. I don't care what you think anymore. And I think maybe that is the only way to get out of a situation like that, where everything is completely wearing down your status, is to make the fairly high status play of saying, nope, I don't agree. <laughs> Well, you know, one thing that's interesting to me uh, that I thought of as you were uh, explaining your breakdown is there is like no conversation going on there. You know, it's like the guy stopped over. He knew what he was going to say. He delivered the message. He responded to a couple of retorts, but there was never going to be any communication there. It was just a broadcast. And that never happens, you know. At work. <laughs> never, never, never. That no. uh, guy is he's poison, right? He's only there for one person, for one reason. He's only there for one reason. He's there to make you feel worse. Oh, boy. So uh, next, let's take a look at a scene from the movie Mean Girls, uh, where the aptly named Mean Girls celebrate uh, after their talent show performance. Hey, good job, Africa. Thanks. Oh, Katie's blushing. Oh my god, you totally have a crush on that guy. No, I don't. That's why you wanted to join the mathletes. Mathletes? You hate math. Oh, look how red she is. You love him, and he totally complimented you. That is so fetch. Gretchen, stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> All right, another classic movie. And this one, uh, the whole thing that Regina George and her gang do throughout this movie, and certainly in this, in this scene, is to, uh, is, is they're raising their own status, but mostly they're lowering other people's. Not uh -huh. so different than Lumberg. They are, they're saying things in this scene that ought to be status raisers. Like, okay. he totally likes you. But the way it comes off, it's a status lowerer. Right, mm. you're 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 interested. You, that's why you joined the mathletes. That's a dig in this context, right? That's so fetch. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's a <laughs> it's a dig. <laughs> this is a moment when these girls are coming off stage after having a triumph. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and when they get off stage, they just dive right back in to lowering each other's status. It's a toxic environment. I mentioned that I, I, there were a couple of times that I, I ran my, my status card exercise where people, you know, didn't, weren't able to line up correctly. Yes. Uh, those were when I would run it in a middle school. Interesting. People would mill around and somebody would see an ace on somebody else's head and they would avert their eyes. They go, oh, I'm not worthy to look at you. Mm -hmm. And the person who had the ace on their head, they would think these people don't want to be around me. Huh. So they would take what was a high status signal as a low status signal. They were so, they were, they were kind of bad at giving high status signals and they were bad at recognizing high status signals. They were so used to giving and receiving low status signals like these mean girls are doing in this movie. Right, right, right. They couldn't even see the other side, right? Um, so they would, they would wind up, the person who was the ace or the king would wind up lining up at the low status end of the, of the line and go, why, why did you do that? And they'd say, because I felt, I felt like garbage when people did that to me. Huh. And, you know, um, I think the lesson for us, I mean, first of all, the lesson is, thank goodness we are not in middle school anymore. <laughs> 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 but the other thing is, so be aware that everything that we do has a, a status implication, you know? Yeah, it, it, yeah. And even mm -hmm. if you're saying things that are complimentary, mm -hmm. they can be perceived as status lowering if they're not delivered, you know, with a really clear sense of, of who the other person is 
um, that, that we want you know, to you own what you do with other people uh, so it has the impact that you want it to have. Yeah, well, what I find so interesting about that is uh, when you were talking, I was thinking about how, you know, words are important, word choice is important, but it's not just the words that you say, because depending on the context, as you were pointing out, or the way it's delivered, uh, that can have a very different sort of impact or people can receive that differently. And what I never thought about, you know, distinctly was part of that is status, right? If yeah. someone is saying something to you in a way that is meant to lower or raise your status, and especially teenagers are very good at, at, at doing that, they become experts at uh, putting people down, um, then, you know, that can certainly be one of the things that's going on and explains why uh, the same words can be received so differently by people. Absolutely. Well, uh, last but not least, we can't forget the notorious RBG. Um, so this is from a podcast uh, where they talk a little bit about uh, being a female Supreme Court justice. Uh, this is More Perfect. I'm Jad Abumrad here with Julia Longoria. We're talking about um, interruptions on the Supreme Court. So if you are one of these female justices who and you're incessantly getting interrupted by the men, uh, I'm curious, like, how do, how do the female justices adapt to that? So Dylan and Tanya noticed that when women first get on the court, they do this thing in their speech. They call it polite speech. They ask if they can ask a question. Uh, I'm sorry, so you're... I'm sorry. Or they apologize for asking a question. Sorry to interrupt, but, but may I, you know, I'm going to ask a question. And during that time, yeah, the, the men would just jump in. Can I ask... Sorry, sorry, I'm sure it disturbs the... Justice Kagan... Let me just change the... Just gets interrupted again and again and again. I agree with Justice Breyer. I just... And at one stage when she says, can I ask, I think Chief Justice Roberts actually says... Can I ask? Sure, sure. Yes. Depends on who's making the referral. And then goes on to ask his question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) No, not really. So, no, not really. You You can't. You can ask, may I ask, and that's all. But over time, Tanya and Dylan find that eventually the female justices find a way to adapt to the situation. What we did notice over time is that their use of that language uh, definitely decreased. All four of the women show um, significant reductions in their use of that polite language. Some of the justices never quite get down to the level of male speech. Most of the men enter the court not using that language much at all. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, having been on the court the longest out of all the women, seems to be very good at this. Ought to be doing. What was your first reason for saying? It's a little bit more direct. So instead of saying, "May I ask?" they're just jumping in. Could you please explain your? And they're saying, "Can you point to the statute where it says this, or where should we disagree with the lower opinion here?" Have we ever you, analyzed a case that way? They'll start asking the question. A justice will attempt to interrupt, and the woman will just continue talking and often win the floor. Well, in the. So the women start to behave like men, exactly. Which tends to fend off interruptions to a point. So, Michael, what does this reveal about status? These are Supreme Court justices, for goodness sake. Unreal. First of all, shout out to the More Perfect podcast. Amazing podcast. Lots of great episodes. And this is an excellent one. It is unreal to think about how many times these women are interrupted. The, the, the study that's being referenced in this podcast talks about how much more likely it is for the women justices to be interrupted than the men and how much more likely it is for the men to be the interrupt. And I know the women who are listening to this are, are saying, gasp, shock, men interrupting women? <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing. I'm, it's It's one of those sad things about our world that this is so normalized that yeah. this can happen. Um, so there are a couple of things that, that come out of this. First of all, the fact that uh, in status terms, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg does is say, I'm not going to phrase my question in a lower status way. I'm not going to ask for permission to ask. I'm going to up my status by jumping right in and asking it. And I'm also going to not allow myself to be over-talked. Mm-hmm. So, I think there is a definite place for that, and it's been somewhat effective. There's a footnote, though. I, the same study, 
looked at Sonia Sotomayor, who is pretty good at getting her voice heard, mm -hmm. who all of a sudden starts to develop a reputation as a bully, undeserved. Mm -hmm. She is not, you know, the, the, the men in the court are uh, way more aggressive in their mm -hmm. questions than Sonia Sotomayor is. But it's another indication that we don't live in a fair world. When women try to act in a high status manner, they try to make that high status play, the world is more inclined to see that as a negative thing than if the man is going to make the same uh, high status play. So I, I don't, I'm no expert in how to get out of these things. I feel the pain of it. I think it's, it's, it's wrong. And I think it's certainly something to be conscious of for all of us to, to make sure that, that we give people the space yep. to make the high status play when it is the appropriate thing to do. And I think it is, uh, you know, it's a message that even though it may be the hard thing to do, it may be the right thing to do. Because Ruth Bader Ginsburg knows that if her voice doesn't get heard, that's one less important voice on that court. There are nine justices. Our system is structured so that every opinion is incredibly important. So she can't let people over talk her. And that's the moment where she has to step up and she has to raise her own status to make sure that that voice gets out there. And one thing I find so interesting about this is, you know, the fact that Supreme Court justices are suffering with it. It's like, oh my gosh, even Supreme Court female <laughs> justices are suffering with it. But on the other hand, Supreme Court justices are tackling this issue and figuring out a way to deal with it. So, so that is also hopeful in showing that, you know, you don't have to be relegated um, to this and there's actions that, you know, you can take. Obviously, there may be some repercussions. The example that you gave about Sonia Sotomayor is, you know, under, I can see that totally happening. It's unfortunate. Um, and, but you and know what also, Sonia Sotomayor, building on your point, um, mm -hmm. Sonia Sotomayor is paving the way for the next Supreme Court justice, right? Oh, yeah, she, absolutely. He's moving the needle to make it more okay for uh, a woman justice to ask a, an aggressive question, to make it more normal. And that's going to make it easier for the next woman who wants to make a high status play. And so everybody works together to move that needle. Yeah, I've been reading this book by Adam Grant uh, called The Originals. And, uh, you know, one thing that comes out of it is when there's a new idea, it, it it is often kind of people resist against it and it's seen as, you know, not right. And the establishment or the, the normalized way of being is very sort of aggressive against it. But that has to happen. Like that stage has to be passed through to the point where then this becomes the new technology or the new norm or the way of doing things. It's, you don't always get to skip from having a great idea that's different. And then that supplanting it. There's this, you know, stage that you have to pass through. And I think that happens sociologically as well. Great point. I wanted to ask you about one more thing uh, related to this whole Supreme Court uh, justice example. Have you ever heard the expression, he peated? No. Okay, so <laughs> unfortunately I do this and I've been, uh, I've, I've been caught doing it and I've admitted when I've done it. It's when uh, you're in a group discussion, right? Let's say at work. And people are throwing out ideas and saying what we should do. And a woman says something and she gives an idea and it's totally ignored. And then people continue talking. And then one of the male colleagues says pretty much exactly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, great idea. And the poor woman is like, wait a second. I just said that 30 seconds ago. And everybody totally ignored me. And I remember telling that to one of my coworkers. And she was like, you totally did that to me the other day. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, well, do, do you see like a, a status play or a status thing kind of going on well, with, it is, with that as you know, well? What's interesting about that is it's a status. My, my daughter, uh, who's in her first year of college now, uh, when she was in high school, uh, there was one boy who was a particular offender, but I think it happened to him more than once, where she would, uh, she would say a joke in a, 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 a quiet voice. He would wait 30 seconds, say the same thing in a louder voice. Everybody would laugh. and. <laughs> So if she's sitting in that situation, right, what is she going to do if she makes the high status play in that moment and says, excuse me, I said that before he said it. You lose. It, it, you lose, right? Yeah. So there's really no way to win that yeah. uh, except uh, for people like you 
who say who are open enough to hear somebody say you did that to me to right. apologize and to be more attuned uh, next time to to you know because you can turn if you're the boy in that situation mm-hmm. you know if you're the man who's who's grabbing somebody else's idea um, what a great opportunity you have I just heard so and so say this thing. Yes. What an excellent opportunity to share status. And you know what? In that exchange, both people's status goes up. Ah, that is great. That is a great way to think about it. So, Michael, it's been a real treat uh, to talk to you and, and learn from you about uh, this whole area of status and status plays. Uh, are there any final comments or advice you'd like to share with the audience? I would say this. I don't want this to come off as an invitation to be manipulative. Okay. That is not what this is about. You know, we're, we're talking about uh, being aware of status. And I think somebody could say, Ooh, how, how am I going to do this to make this situation turn out the way I want it to do? And that is not the intention. Okay. But the intention is to, to be aware that status exchanges are a part of every interaction, right? Uh, maybe not as clearly as they are in Office Space or in Mean Girls, but, but they're always going to be there. They were for you with your colleague. Um, mm-hmm. These things are happening, and the more attuned you are, the better you can manage them, right? And then the other thing is just, uh, we talked about this earlier, don't get stuck in one status. If you're yes. always walking into a room and playing high status, that's probably not going to work for you every day. That's not the need for every situation. That's not the right approach. Be flexible enough to drop your status. And if you're in the habit of coming into every meeting in low status, of always saying, you know, like as you talk about your idea or asking everything as a question, if you're always pitching things in a low status way, and there's probably a moment somewhere where you want to hike your status up, where you want to swallow hard and stand up in front of the room and say, I have the answer here, and I'd like you to pay attention to me, right? So having the ability to drop your status and raise your status is just going to set you up to be more effective in interactions going forward. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on why it works. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me tell you about a secret weapon I use to make myself seem smarter. Every day during my commute, I listen to an audiobook. And if something strikes me as insightful or interesting, I make a mental note and tell it to the first person I can, and then another. Fresh insights delivered piping hot. Like pairing a fine wine with cheese, a great audiobook to go with this podcast is Originals by Adam Grant. To receive a free copy of Originals or another audiobook of your choice, just go to audibletrial.com slash whyitworks. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash whyitworks for your free audiobook. Thank you for supporting our show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Why It Works. For more information about Joquan Joe Coaching, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit joquanjo.com and stay tuned for our next Why It Works adventure.